0: This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a Ph.D. in Counselor Education and Supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question asks if there are downsides to empathy. I've also had a number of other related questions like what is sadistic empathy, and what are empathy vampires? So the answer might be a little bit surprising to this question. So when we talk about empathy, usually what we see is, in terms of the research literature, we see a lot of positive attributes associated with it. It gets a lot of attention, Around being pro social, like we see the empathy altruism hypothesis that shows that empathy seems to be tied to positive pro social behavior. And empathy is also looked at as one of the key human factors for making the planet better. So empathy is really put on a pedestal, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Overall, empathy is actually very good. But here I'm going to be looking at some of the downsides or some of the potential downsides we see with empathy. So the first part here would be to define empathy. So what is empathy? Well, empathy is actually a little bit confusing because in the world of mental health counseling, we use empathy, we use that term differently than we would see in the general public, how the term is used by the population. So in terms of how we use it in mental health counseling, empathy is really understanding cognitively how somebody's feeling. So, it's a very narrow definition. We could also call it cognitive empathy, and it helps counselors to provide therapy to clients. Empathizing actually can really help people quite a bit. Cognitive empathy. Now, affective empathy, again in the context of counseling, is when you can feel the same way as somebody else. Another word for that is sympathy. Counselors do use both cognitive and affective empathy, but the emphasis, of course, as I mentioned, is on the cognitive component. Now, if we move kind of to the general population's view of empathy, the popular conception of empathy, we see that it means co-experiencing a situation of another. So, it's sharing emotions and feelings. So, really, it's a lot like sympathy or affective empathy in terms of counseling. So, when I talk about empathy here and the downside, I am really talking more about sympathy or affective empathy, and not as much in terms of cognitive empathy, but both are tied in. So, there are downsides to both cognitive and affective empathy. So, there's one definition of empathy in the popular culture, and another for mental health counseling. So, we also have to remember here when we talk about empathy, that the standard of emotion sharing only applies to certain emotions And feelings. So empathy doesn't really cover all the emotions or feelings that somebody can have. And usually empathy is associated with stronger emotions and feelings, like suffering, disgust, or pain. And occasionally, we also see other feelings like embarrassment, pride, and guilt. But when we move to other complex emotions, like the idea of love, or mixed emotions, it's not really clear how empathy fits in. So empathy seems to have limits, and it seems to be more easily activated by certain strong emotions and feelings. So now getting on to the ways that empathy is bad. And just want to reiterate here that empathy is mostly good, but here I'm covering the more negative elements of empathy. I used a few different sources to create this video, including this list here of the downside of empathy, these different items, and I'll put those references in the description for this video. So looking at the first negative here for empathy, we see that empathy can actually be harmful to the empathizer. It can lead to exhaustion or kind of loss of sense of self. Now, we see this in counseling. We call it compassion fatigue or burnout. And it's associated with both cognitive and affective empathy use. So right away, using empathy potentially can be hazardous. So we have to keep that in mind. And there's also a cognitive cost to empathy. There have been some interesting research findings that show that sometimes people won't engage in empathy because of that cognitive cost, because it's simply too difficult. And they would rather stay away from that hard work and just avoid empathy altogether. So the next negative here is what's called the spotlight effect. So empathy is not always really well suited to help people make ethically correct decisions. Empathy can be used to focus a lot of attention over a short time period on an individual. And sometimes when this happens, people neglect the larger picture. And they ignore long-term solutions and they also ignore the large numbers of people. They focus, again, just on one person. So empathy really heightens the attention for special cases and, again, can be a powerful motivator to behave on behalf of those individual cases. But that intense awareness on the individual, again, comes at the cost of looking at the larger picture. So one example of this would be, in terms of empathy and how it can be manipulated, would be how people are willing to donate time and money when they see one hungry child on like a commercial, but they won't necessarily be moved to act on behalf of the tens of thousands of people that are suffering because of famine or civil war or other problems. So it was good that somebody could be motivated to help one individual, but a lot of people are still being ignored. So again, that's the spotlight effect of empathy. So with this weakness, really we're saying here that empathy is something that can be exploited. We see this sometimes, too, with members of juries. Jury members might really empathize with a person who's on trial, and that might make them move away from a morally correct decision. So if the person, like on the stand, if the defendant is really manipulative, if they know how to activate empathy in a jury, that can really be to that person's advantage in terms of being found not guilty. So again, the spotlight effect is a downside of empathy. The next downside to empathy is what we call the polarizing effect. Now we know that people are really known to make judgments and take sides in situations really quickly and based on emotions and feelings. And when someone's drawn to empathize with people, and this can lead them to agree with the opinions, emotions, and viewpoints of those people they empathize with. So in a conflict, like in a war, people may support the side they have empathy for, but at the same time neglect the other side, so in a sense, empathy can lead to war, can lead to people taking sides in a war, and can even lead to murder. Now what happens here with conflicts, and when people empathize with one side, is they tend to look at the other side, the opposing force, as unfair, undesirable, evil, unlikable, and morally wrong, really in a lot of different ways, so it's not just good feelings for the person or the people that they empathize with. It's also bad feelings for the enemy, so to speak, the other side, the side that becomes interpreted as the enemy by the empathizer. Another effect here is the stronger the support feelings are for one's chosen side, the stronger the empathy, we see the more negative the other side appears. So it's not just the activation of empathy that creates good and bad in somebody's mind, it's how strong they empathize with their side. The next potential downside of empathy is that empathy can actually be selfish. Now we see that one of the assumptions for empathy in the research literature has been that the target of the empathy benefits from that empathy. But actually, empathy is rewarding for the empathizer as well. There's evidence that the arousal of emotions is generally perceived as being more positive than negative, And positive emotions play a stronger role in life satisfaction they do negative emotions. So there can be, again, this selfish component to empathy that motivates people to empathize. So this idea kind of connects to the idea of empathy vampires or empathy vampirism. So what's happening here is the empathizer feels and experiences the world vicariously through others and, in a sense, participates in their fate without having their best interest in mind. So, somebody can think that they're doing good for somebody else through empathy, but they're really not. So, the implicit interest of the empathizer really, again, is in their own experiencing, in an experiencing that's pleasurable for them. So, this is the vampire component. This isn't healthy. This is a downside of empathy. So, examples of empathy vampirism would be stalkers, stage parents, and helicopter parents. So, kind of an interesting take on Empathy and how it can really have again another kind of negative feature to it now the last downside to empathy. I'll talk about is Empathy sadism or sadistic empathy and this one actually has a lot of different facets to it. It's fairly interesting This is where somebody enjoys the pain or suffering of another because the negative feelings of another are somehow interpreted by the empathizer as being positive so Something's kind of amiss, right? Something's not aligned when we see sadistic empathy, because there's this conversion of somebody else's negative feelings into positive feelings for the empathizer. So it makes sense that empathic sadism would be associated with negative outcomes. Now, we see that empathic sadism really, in a broad sense, appears in a variety of forms, right? We see enjoyment in sad movies and movies that are tragic, we see enjoyment in sadistic acts, of course that lines up fairly well with empathic sadism. We see this idea of schadenfreude, I've talked about this in videos before, taking joy in the suffering of another. We also see bullying, shaming, and teasing are all examples of empathic sadism. Now it's important to note that empathic sadism or sadistic empathy doesn't explain all of these occurrences. Really, it's a bit of a mystery how empathy and sadism work together but we know it exists, and we know it can contribute to all those different occurrences. So what happens with sadistic empathy some of the time is that it leads to the manipulation of others. So this kind of wraps in with the construct of manipulative empathy, which is really a type of sadistic empathy. So manipulative empathy is when somebody brings about a situation, they try to cause a situation with this particular goal in mind. And the goal is to elicit an emotional response in another person, so that it's observable, so that they can start empathizing with that other person. So, using a person A, person B scenario, if person A is using manipulative empathy, they're looking to elicit an emotional response in person B so that person A can use that, they can empathize with that. So, this is kind of how manipulative empathy gets started. And it tends to focus on negative emotions. But it can also focus on positive emotions, like gift-giving can be a form of manipulative empathy, and by extension, empathic sadism. So when I talk about manipulative empathy, one of the questions that I see comes up a lot is, what about narcissism and psychopathy? Right, Because empathic sadism and manipulative empathy seem to have a real close connection to the different characteristics we see associated with narcissism and psychopathy. And what we see in the research literature is, for a long time, there was this idea that psychopaths and, to some extent, narcissists didn't really have the ability to experience emotional depth or empathy. But now the research literature seems to be pointing in a different direction. It appears that with psychopaths and narcissists, it might not be as much about not being able to experience empathy, but not choosing to focus on areas of empathy. Now, there could be some reduced Empathic functioning is well mixed in there, but we know that most people who are psychopathic and narcissistic still have a capacity for empathy. Now, a lot of times with psychopathy and narcissism, we do think that cognitive empathy is really pretty much fully intact, and that affective empathy may be compromised a little. But again, there's a capacity, of course, for both types of empathy. So those are some of the downsides of empathy. So with this idea, of course, that empathy is mostly good, And then we hear about the downside, we hear about these potential pitfalls. What do we do? What do we do with this new information about empathy and how empathy can really have marked shortcomings? Well, I think that the bottom line of all this is empathy is mostly good, but logic is good too. And we don't want the emotional response component of empathy to get out of control. We don't want to make quick decisions. We still want to look to logic and reason and kind of slow things down, and carefully analyze our decisions and our motivation. Empathy can be a good way to get started, to get interested in a topic, to get interested in a cause, but we still have to make rational decisions. We see in the research literature there's this call to this idea of rational compassion instead of emotional empathy, because emotions can, of course, lead us astray, and empathy can lead us astray as well. Now, that's an interesting idea, rational compassion, but realistically, people are wired for empathy. So I think the real solution here would be, again, to appreciate the role of empathy and to slow things down. Be aware of the shortcomings of empathy and kind of go into these different situations with our eyes wide open. So in consideration of kind of all the facts for and against empathy, I'm still a fan of empathy. Obviously, it's an important component of the counseling profession and the other psychotherapeutic professions but it's also an important construct for people in general. Empathy usually brings about good. We just have to be a little bit careful about some of the negatives. What is the relationship between psychopathy and murder? Psychopathy and violent crime? Another question here is, what type of psychopathy is more dangerous? So, psychopathy is an interesting construct, and I'll go through the types of psychopathy here, and then talk about violent crime and murder. We know that psychopaths commit a disproportionately high percentage of violent crimes. And we know that there are two types of psychopathy, and it gets a little confusing sometimes because really psychopathy is on a continuum, but these two constructs have held up well over time. So most of the time somebody's going to be more so in one category than the other. Another confusing part here about psychopathy is that we have all these different names for really the same two types. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland news producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Maholovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today, wherever you get your favorite shows. Something is creeping, don't follow it Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorized financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. So we see factor one and factor two psychopathy. We see primary and secondary which is really the same thing. We see interpersonal affective and lifestyle antisocial. Again, the same two types. And to make it even more confusing, sometimes factor one psychopathy is just called psychopathy and factor two psychopathy is called sociopathy. So, all these are really describing, again, the same two constructs, the same two ways to categorize psychopathic characteristics. So I'm just going to refer to the two types as factor one and factor two. I just find that to be the easiest way for me to say it. But again, it's important to understand there's a lot of different ways to refer to these same two types. So with factor one psychopathy, we see characteristics like grandiosity, which is similar to what we see with narcissism. We also see pathological lying, manipulation, a superficial charm. So somebody who's charming, but there's not a lot of sensitivity or depth behind that charm. We see being callous and unemotional, so sometimes this is thought of as low in neuroticism or a lack of empathy. We also see a lack of guilt or remorse, so all these are factor one psychopathy characteristics. As far as factor two psychopathy characteristics, we see a parasitic lifestyle, somebody who is prone to boredom, they need stimulation, sometimes this is called sensation-seeking, We see impulsivity, irresponsibility, a failure to have long-term goals. We also see a number of characteristics related to criminal activity. So, poor behavioral controls, not being able to control one's behavior. We see criminal versatility, and this is where somebody commits a wide variety of crimes. And when we look at factor two, psychopathy, we see here it has a fairly close relationship to the mental disorder, antisocial personality disorder. This is a cluster B personality disorder in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. Now, factor one psychopathy could also be related to antisocial personality disorder, but factor two psychopathy, again, has the stronger link there. We study psychopathy, though, on a continuum and not categorically, meaning someone would have a particular score on an instrument that measures psychopathy, whereas antisocial personality disorder is categorical. Either somebody has a diagnosis of that disorder or they don't have a diagnosis. With these two types of psychopathy in mind, I'm now going to move over to violence and take a look at the types of violence. And interestingly, one of the popular ways, one of the common ways to look at violence, is also a two-factor model. We see predatory and affective violence. So when we think of predatory violence, we think of some other related terms, like proactive, the word attack, instrumental, and cold-blooded. Predatory violence is thought of as being purposeful. So somebody engages in this activity deliberately with premeditation, and they tend to lack any type of emotional display while engaging in that violent activity or while planning for that violent activity. Predatory violence also has a close relationship with sexual violence, much more so than affective violence does. Now, we see with predatory violence that this reflects aggression, again, in the service of premeditated or anticipated goals. So it's associated with high goal-directedness and a low level of emotional arousal. We also see it's associated with low levels of intoxication. So when we think of people who are engaging in criminal activity, and there's this intoxication component that's contributing to that, we're not really thinking about predatory violence here. So predatory violence has a strong relationship with factor one psychopathy, that callous, unemotional type psychopathy. Now we move over to affective violence. We see some words here associated with this type of violence, like impulsive, defensive, hot-blooded, as opposed to cold-blooded, that we saw with predatory violence. And we also see the word reactive. So this type of violence really reflects an act of aggression in response to a perceived threat. It doesn't have to be an actual threat, but rather just the perception the threat is there. We see that these acts are typically emotionally charged and seem relatively uncontrolled when compared to the acts of violence that would be categorized as predatory. We also see that affective violence is essentially an attempt at threat reduction. Again, even if that threat isn't real, that is really underlying this idea of affective violence. So not surprisingly, here we see low goal-directedness and a high level of emotional arousal, And we also see higher levels of intoxication associated with affective violence. So in terms of psychopathy, Factor 2 psychopathy has a strong relationship with affective violence. So Factor 1 psychopathy tends to be predatory, and Factor 2 psychopathy tends to be affective. So with all this in mind, which type of psychopath is more dangerous? Well, as you might imagine, it really depends on a lot of factors here. I would say that both types are dangerous, but in different ways. If we look at the tendencies, the general tendencies. So a factor one psychopath would be more dangerous to a stranger. right? So they typically don't attack people that they know. They tend to target strangers. A factor two psychopath would be more dangerous to somebody that they know, and particularly dangerous if there's some sort of emotionally charged relationship there. So, for example, a romantic partner. They would be more dangerous, again, all things being equal. They would be more dangerous than a Factor 1 psychopath to somebody that they're involved in a romantic relationship with. Also, a Factor 2 psychopath would be more dangerous if they are intoxicated. So, again, all psychopathy comes with some level of danger, but we see different targets in terms of violence, different types of violence, and different circumstances under which somebody has a tendency to be violent again like intoxication so i used a few different sources for this video and i'll put the references to those articles in the description of this video and one really looked at psychopathic murders which was another part of this question or another question kind of related to this video now this sample came from finland so you can't necessarily look at these results and apply them to everywhere in the world but it's actually a really interesting study and it looked at how individuals with high psychopathy scores who committed murder were different than individuals with low psychopathy scores that committed murder. So with this comparison, we see individuals with high psychopathy scores that committed murder were more likely to leave the scene of the killing, more likely to deny the charges, more likely to claim self-defense as the primary reason for the killing. Now, of course, self-defense does occur legitimately in many instances, but here we're talking about people that were known to have committed murder. So the authorities knew these people committed murder, and the murderers still said that self-defense was really the reason behind the killing. We also see here they tend to be convicted of a less serious crime, which indicates that they're able to manipulate the system pretty well. And this has actually been shown a few times in a few different studies. Psychopaths lie and manipulate and can trick people in the criminal justice system. They can trick police officers, judges, attorneys, as well as a number of other people that work in the criminal justice system and in law enforcement. And there are actually a number of different theories about how they do this so effectively. One of the theories is that people in the criminal justice system, people who work in the criminal justice system, seem to believe, again, overall, there's a tendency, they seem to believe they have an ability to detect lying that's better than average. And of course, from the scientific literature, we know that's not true. Their ability is actually the same as everyone else's. Generally, we're not very good at detecting lying, particularly when dealing with somebody who has psychopathic characteristics because they're very effective at lying and manipulation. The problem is that a number of people in the criminal justice system have high confidence about their ability to detect lies. So they believe they have an ability that they don't have. And this confidence only adds to the ability of the psychopath to deceive them. Again, because people in the criminal justice system believe their assessment about somebody's deception is accurate, and they're not really clearly seeing when they're being deceived. So this really is an important reminder that we have to be skeptical, even about our own abilities. So if we think we have a particular ability to see when people are lying, to know what people are doing, to read people's behavior, to think that we understand what they're thinking, we need to be skeptical. There's not a lot of evidence to show that individuals are effective at uncovering the lies and the manipulation attempts that we see with psychopathy. So we really have to be careful and somewhat skeptical. Being overconfident can actually lead to individuals who are psychopathic getting early release or, again, being convicted of less serious crime or beating charges altogether. So when we think about predatory versus affective violence and we think about psychopathic murders, A lot of the characteristics of psychopathic murders kind of make sense in that predatory affective framework. And again, in the framework of factor one and factor two psychopathy. So it shouldn't be surprising that somebody who's psychopathic lies about committing a murder. The tendency, of course, would be that they would lie about a wide variety of circumstances. So again, it wouldn't be surprising that they would lie about a homicide that they were involved in. So, of course, when we talk about psychopathy and criminal justice and violent crimes and murder, we know these are serious issues, and there have been many attempts to treat psychopaths, to help them to become functional members of society and to not involve themselves in violence. What's interesting here, of course, is that some of these treatments have been somewhat effective, but many have not been effective, and some have actually made things worse. We see here that some of the interventions tend to have paradoxical effects. So when we look at treating psychopaths, especially when looking at violent crime and violent recidivism, we see that insight-oriented therapy, and we know a lot of counseling is based on insight, as well as group therapy interventions, actually tend to help psychopaths develop better ways of manipulating, using people, and deceiving, including the staff that's delivering the therapy. And unfortunately, they're not really learning a lot about themselves, referring to the psychopaths here. So they gain some manipulation skill, but don't tend to gain the insight. So there's not really an offset. So you might say, well, if they're gaining some ability to manipulate, but they're learning a lot about themselves, maybe it's worth the trade-off. But here we're not really seeing a good trade-off. What's more, psychopaths tend to manipulate staff into thinking that they've made good progress and therefore are good candidates for early release. A lot of times we see staff really supporting psychopaths in terms of early release. They look at them and say, well, they're rehabilitated, and they go to bat for them, so to speak. So again, there's a real danger to falling into this manipulation, to not being aware that this manipulation is likely when somebody has psychopathic tendencies. So if insight-oriented therapy is not really helpful for psychopathy, what would be? So, again, a lot of therapies target around changing somebody's personality, like helping them to develop empathy, but this doesn't seem to be working. So now we see a lot of research focused on behavioral changes, behavioral self-management, so promoting a more pro-social lifestyle in a sense of logistics of cost-benefit and not in terms of interpersonal change, not in terms of personality change. Really just looking at... The cost and benefits of violence compared to nonviolence. So, really trying to convince individuals who are in the criminal justice system and who have psychopathic tendencies that nonviolence can help them meet their goals more effectively than violence can. So, if they want certain things out of life and they play by the rules, including nonviolence, they'll get further. That's really the whole idea behind some of these behavioral strategies. Not that we should necessarily give up on helping somebody to change personality characteristics or give up on the value of insight. But we have to be realistic about manipulation and deception and understand that we don't want to help people develop these skills. We don't want people to get more invested. We don't want psychopaths to get more invested in their ability to deceive and refine that to a point where it becomes even harder to catch them and prosecute them and treat them. So, an important note here when talking about psychopathy and crime and all this, we are talking about here individuals who are psychopathic to a fairly extreme degree. Psychopathy is something we see in the general population quite often, and most people that have psychopathic characteristics are not a danger to anyone. Some psychopathic characteristics in certain situations are actually beneficial. They actually help certain types of professionals do their jobs. What we're really talking about here is when somebody has very high score on a psychopathic inventory of some type, a psychometric instrument designed to measure psychopathy. A score that would fall in a range where we know that treatment is indicated in almost every instance. So again, not talking about psychopathy in general, but these extreme instances of psychopathy that seem to be quite overrepresented in the criminal justice system. So the levels of psychopathy that are strongly associated with criminal offending. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa Vita Brevis. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding